and welcome to another episode of the Lux Ops Here podcast. I am your host, Scott Bowser. I am coming to you live from my living room, and I hope you enjoy the show. This week, this uh, episode is great. Uh, it's my buddy Earl Skakel. We go way back on the L.A. comedy scene, and uh, he's a really funny guy. You can see him on Roast Battle from, from Comedy Central. You can see him on uh, the I'm Dying Up Here. We talk about all this stuff uh, during this episode. Uh, which was on Showtime, which was a great show about like the '70s comedy scene in uh, in LA, uh, kind of fictionalized version of it, produced by Jim Carrey. Uh, he's on, you know, and you can see him. Uh, well, when like Santa comes back, I mean, time he tours and opens for Rob Schneider and uh, and a couple other guys all over the country. So he's a great guy, and I hope you enjoy this one. Make sure you hit subscribe. And please leave a five-star rating and a little review. It helps. We have been hitting the charts in the U.S., Australia, and Sweden now. I think we're very close to cracking it in Spain and the U.K. as well. Thank you guys for the support everywhere. It's awesome. And uh, please enjoy my friend, Earl Skakel. Earl, what is up, buddy? Glad to have you here on the show, man. Oh, we're starting. Yeah, oh, we're, I thought we're you starting. said you were recording. No, yeah, we're starting, dude. Oh. Yeah. No, it's good to see you, dude. It's yeah, been man. Uh, It's been a couple years, yeah. and uh, you're one of the, uh, you know, I've been doing comedy like 20 years, I think. You're one of the uh, few good people I've met in 20 years. <laughs> the, I'm not kidding. There are few and far between, and I, I feel <laughs> the same way, man. Like, you're one of the, the, like, the genuinely good dudes I know in comedy, which... Like you said, it's it's like uh we're a dying breed, dude. I don't know what it is. Is it Gen X? Is that what it is? I mean, I think it's just uh, good people in this business find each other because there's not that many to find. Um, I, I I definitely you know, agree. With I that. can't help. I I uh, yeah. you I know think... like I can't help you. You can't help me per se, but we're <laughs> still friends. Yeah, man. Like, dude. You're helping me. You're coming on the show and helping me have some fun content for the people. Uh, dude, actually, I, I can think of one common denominator we have that most comics don't. Uh, we're both Steelers fans and Kings fans, which is a very rare combination. You don't see too many L.A. Kings, Hockey's, Pittsburgh Steelers uh, football fans, but both you and I are. Yeah, I mean, I was a King fan long before Wayne Gretzky uh, showed up. Back in the Marcel uh, Dion days? I remember 1980 sitting uh, at the NHL All-Star Game right next to Ralph Macchio. Uh, That's pre-Outsiders Macchio, too, right? This is pre-Up the Academy, which is one of my favorite films of his. He's probably so embarrassed by that movie he doesn't talk about it, but uh, it's a pretty funny movie. Um, but uh, that was the all-star game the Triple Crown line played in. Awesome. And, uh, uh, Dion, Taylor, and Simmer. Yeah. And uh, I remember when they were introduced, they were introduced as a unit. So they all three skated out on the ice. That's badass. And uh, yeah, I know. It was pretty cool. I mean, as a kid, it was cool. And then Ralph Macchio was only cheering for the Islander players, which there were many. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, that's know, when they so. were a don- like a dynasty back in those days, right? Yeah, that was like, I forget what Islanders made that all-star team, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was uh, Mike Bossy, uh, Billy Smith, uh, 
Clark Gillies, I might have gotten in there, and uh, Dennis Potvin obviously was there. Uh, yeah. So uh, I gotta but, say, uh, dude, I'm uh, I'm loving your glasses right now. You're giving off a mean uh, De Niro at the end of Casino vibe, fucking sitting there. Let me do a sweet, yeah, <laughs> dude. Those are sweet, dude. I need to get something He's like that. My, uh, well, I don't get a uh, free pair of glasses, but I'll, I'll say who makes them, I, and they're very expensive. I do not get. This is not like me slyly plugging something. It's Dita Eyewear, D-I-T-A. And, uh, you know, they're they're one of the few glasses that actually fit my head. Yeah, so, they're cool, dude. Uh, well, I need them. These are not for show. Yeah, so, no, I, those, I, are, those aren't, uh, those aren't every, like, yeah, those aren't, like, uh, glasses for guys that are just putting on the style points. I've, I found that out about a few comics, actually. And that always really pissed me off because I too need them to see, and it really pisses me off when people do it. Because like I'd rather not wear them, you know. That would, that's my preferred. I thing. like my glasses. Like I like wearing them. I I'm sure I could get uh, laser or LASIK surgery for my. I wear them because I have a very bad stigmatism in my uh, left eye, and like it's horrible. That's me too. But, uh, yeah. I don't mind. Uh, I, I'm into the Buddy Holly, Elvis Costello looks. So. I do like picking them out. I, 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 no, I, I shouldn't say I don't like wearing. I do like wearing them. I, uh, I have some cool like uh, Hunter S. Thompson ones lying around here somewhere. So those are a lot of fun. But, <laughs> dude, yeah, I mean, I think uh, they're definitely a look. Uh, you know, Hanson Brothers. Uh, yeah. Vibe and uh, I get a lot of Ace Rothstein. Yeah, uh, that's you know, what I'm into. Th- casino. Definitely Ace Rothstein. See, yeah. I need to get something similar. I saw. I was looking at some similar to those that uh, it's the Goliath frames. Obviously, I'm not getting paid right. by them either. Uh, but those are like the ones that run DMC, like DMC wore, and then like a yeah. lot of those gangster, like '70s gangsters, often wore those too. And I'd get those nice with the nice tint, you know. Because living out here in Vegas, I need some good sports book Ace Rothstein glasses, like. You know, if I'm not doing, oh yeah, I mean, I, I do have the Cuban like barber fake. shirts and stuff, so like that's cool. I mean, I uh, got a hot shave once in Vegas. That was the most painful experience ever. I, you know, I go into this guy's uh, barber shop and he's got pictures of like Sinatra up there. So I, this guy's got to be good. Is it a like, barber shop in and, the casino uh, or off the uh, like? Uh... It was in the casino. I, I forget where. I think it might have been the Tropicana. And uh, this guy looked like a character in casino. So I'm like, this guy's going to be amazing. Yeah. And I knew something was wrong when he started putting cold water in the beginning, which is what you should do in the end. Because that closes up your pores. Yeah. You need and, hot water uh, to open uh, the pores so you can get the shave under the what? under the skin, basically. And he butchered my face. Like it was bleeding. I was I had like three or four different cuts. And I had to I was I was in Vegas to play in a ball hockey tournament. So I show up to the rink, which is by that sex club, the green door. It's just funny that it would be right next door to that. And I'm bleeding <laughs> before the uh face off. And the, the other teams looking at me, they wouldn't come near me because they thought I was a maniac. <laughs> this guy came over from the sex shop bleeding like a fucking psycho. <laughs> oh, I looked like a, uh, you know, Freddy Krueger. And <laughs> of course, the guy put the hot water on at the end. And I, halfway through, I was in too deep. So I had to just, yeah, you just have take to take it. But 
<laughs> he's got a bareback that yeah. one, dude. That is brutal. I'd like to kill that guy. Oh man. Dude, uh, all right, so speaking of casinos, I wanted to pitch a movie idea to you that I've been sick at sitting on for a while. Um, we're we're gonna remake Smoking Aces. We're gonna have Jeremy Piven. Okay. We're gonna have Jeremy Piven infinite again, but instead of being a bad magician, he's a bad comic. You with me so far? But this time it's gonna be a snuff film. Oh, well, I... We're gonna actually murder him. Oh, I'm in, I'm on board. I don't even have to know the rest of the script. Yeah, it's just uh, this time we actually kill him, so no one will ever have to deal with Jeremy Piven ever again. Uh, you brutally mocking him on Twitter is one of my favorite things on the planet. For those of you not in the loop, Jeremy Piven of Entourage fame <laughs> is a stand-up comic now, and. Well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say no, okay. he stands he on does, stage. He does comedy at comedy clubs. How about that? I wouldn't even say that. He's he's behind a microphone. He's yeah. He, he's, he's not doing comedy. Okay, he's on stage at uh, venues. Well, the Laugh Factory loves him, so I don't know what that says about the Laugh Factory. The Laugh Factory is the worst, man. Like. Uh, I remember when I was first starting, I did the, the open mic there a couple of times and the owner sits there and watches you in judgment. And uh, they cut me off for saying Wiener. Was, yeah, Harvey, the guy on the piano. Yeah, like, like, because they're like, hey, it's a G-rated mic. You can't do anything. I was like, all right, cool. I'll do a dick joke, but I'll replace it with Wiener. And it'll be hilarious. And they cut me off and uh, I never went back. I thought that was way too silly. I mean, I auditioned there, and uh, I don't want to say it was a good set because it was like five minutes. That's not a set, yeah. but uh, it was pretty good. Like, it was as close to killing as I could have done at that time. So I go up there to talk to this guy, and the owner's a failed comic, so I don't know how he's giving comedy advice. And uh, he says, come back in two weeks. You should be paid regular. I love you. Exact words. I come back in two weeks. Had an even better set than I had the night he told me that. And before my ass even hit the chair, he's like, you don't do it for me, buddy. You're too monotone. I'm like, what did you do weeks ago? What? So I haven't been back since. Yeah, that place has a, a knack for sucking the soul out of people. The, one of the funniest things you can do in L.A. during when open mics are up and running is like Tuesday afternoons, the people that line up there like at 2 p.m. to do the open mic. And it's all these like like hicks fresh off the bus. They're in the big city now. And they're going straight to the Laugh Factory because they heard Tim Allen perform there or some shit. And... Well, I just, uh, well, you know, I can't get mad at them because they don't know any better. No, no, no. Like... And usually they'll figure it out in a couple you... weeks. Like, some don't. It took me a couple of years to figure out that place, but uh, you know, it, it's just you look at a lot of the people they have on their lineups. It, it's it's comics that they wouldn't get on the open mic at the comedy store, let alone the lineup. Yeah. So, but you know, they do well. I mean, it, it's I'd I'd love to be in there. Uh, you know, it, it's a big comedy club, but. Uh, it's one of those weird you know, ones because it's got the high ceiling. I'm not a fan of comedy clubs with high ceilings. I think that's an important architectural feature. The lower the ceiling, the more the uh, laughter creates like a back and forth kind of thing with the performer and the audience. And like you can kind of feel it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a little more. Uh, 
I guess of a corporate type comedy club. You know, you, you go there, you see the show, you leave. There's no hanging out. Yeah. There's yeah. no, you know, cool vibe like it's, at the comedy store. Yeah, the comedy store you know, is like have, a fun place to hang out. Like, even if you're not going to go. Well, there. they've, got, they've got like three bars at the store. So, like, you can go there and never even go into the club and have a good time. Yep. Uh, so, uh, and the improv is a little bit like that, but it, it's not. It's just in a bad location in, in the dead spot of Melrose. Yep. So, you know, it, it's, but that's, a, you know, it's a great club too. And but, then you, you have know, Ha Ha Cafe where you can buy u- cocaine from a used car salesman. Yeah. And who's emceeing the show at the same time. Uh, you know, I just had Brooks wheeling on and I was telling him this and I, I'm going to start asking every comic this, but like, I feel like there's three types of comics. The comics that like you want to hang out with or you, you you could you have you, it reminds you of a friend you had or somebody like that somebody who's identifiable like that. Then there's the comics that seem a little bit more like introverted, uh, maybe a little offbeat, weird. Like they're kind of out there, you know, like your Bamfords or you know, like stuff like that, right? And then you have the third gen genre, which is like failed MMA fighter doing comedy. Yeah, but he's protected, man. You know, he he's like. Uh... <laughs> You know, he's smart. Like, he gets in with, uh, you know, popular comics. And, and, like, that's 80% of this business, I find, is who your friends are in it. So, uh, it does I mean, help. I, I've gotten a lot of, you know, I've gotten more stuff from my friends who aren't comics than my friends who are comics, if that makes sense. Like, my friends who oh, went I, to yeah. film school and just randomly did shit think of me way more than for stuff than comics do. Like... I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, in, in his, I think, and, you know, there's people who aren't comics who, you know, like Rappaport was a great or is a great actor, uh, but he works hard. I'll give him that, you know, and, and Jamie Kennedy, another dude who works really hard and, and he came from another world. It's, uh, I think Jamie problem, Kennedy didn't start as a standup. He got famous so fast. I don't, he might've started, but he, you know, he's like Rob Schneider style where like people forget Rob started as a standup. Yeah. You know, but he got famous pretty fast. Same uh, with David Spade. And, you like, know, he was on S. Spade was in Police Academy yeah. four a few years before he was even on SNL. Well, we'll give him a pass on that. But like, <laughs> uh, but you know, like Schneider like started at Holy City Zoo in, in San Francisco with like, uh, you know, Robin Williams and, yeah. uh, there's Margaret Cho, legendary, think. yeah, yeah, uh, le- legendary local comic uh, by the name of Larry Bubbles Brown, who who was probably the funniest one out of them all. But he, you know, he just was content to be like king of the Northern California scene. Like he uh, he never came to L.A. really, and like that dude is so funny. But uh, you know, some people are like they're not in it to make it. Yeah. I, I see a lot of people in LA uh, where it's like they're like um, like like they get, keep getting like like I think Hugh Moore is a good example of this or Blaine Capatch where they keep getting really good writing jobs and so they they never go out and become like a big headliner on the road or whatever they easily could and they slay every room they're in but like they're more content to just do, have fun with stand up as they cash huge writing checks all week you know. Yeah, no, Hugh Moore wrote on the cartoon I'm on, uh, 
he's he's brilliant. Like, yeah, he's one of the funniest guys I've ever seen. Like, and I can't speak for him. You know, I, you know, everyone has different motivations, but I could see if you're like riding on an Adult Swim cartoon or a Netflix animated project, why would you want to go to the Funny Bone in Idaho? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, I think anyone in their right mind would go, I'll just stay in my apartment or house and, and write and, and make double what I'd be making at the Funny Bone in Idaho. Not, I'm not putting down the Funny Bone in Idaho. I'm just like, no. You know, fine like, establishment. Uh, oh, no, I mean, like, but I think anyone, especially nowadays, traveling sucks, given all the restrictions. Yeah. Uh, Have you that's done my uh, I've done probably uh, in the year, basically, we've been in quarantine or, or whatever, lockdown. Uh, I've done under 10 shows. Uh, I think three or four of those were with Rob Schneider outdoors, you know, and uh, did did like a charity benefit show in San Diego for firefighters. Uh, did a few at the comedy store. I didn't really enjoy because it was just a weird setup. You know, you're in the original room facing the patio so the window is uh like between you and the audience so, so you, you can't hear them laugh you're like a like a amsterdam hooker like in the red light district like oh I, that's your- exactly what it's like uh <laughs> so you'd have to like you do a joke and then you kind of there's like a maybe five ten second pause and then they laugh and then you gonna like it's it was just i didn't enjoy it but like there were some people like Jamar Neighbors, who's a super funny L.A. comic. He did an hour, but like I would tap out at like ten minutes, going, "Okay, this isn't." Yeah, this yeah. But you know, he he loved it. Yeah, I so. could see some people like really adapting to it and like working it in there and making it funny. Like, yeah, it must be tough. Like, uh, I haven't, I mean, I haven't done stand up in a couple of years, so I mean, I prefer just podcasts, you know. So like. One thing I like about this is, like, when I originally decided to do this show, I was just going to review local bars and stuff and kind of give, like, an insider's guide to Vegas. Well, since, like, everything's kind of been shut down or there's crazy restrictions, so I'm never going to get a good, you know, idea of what the place is actually about. I just started interviewing my friends and stuff, but, like, thanks to Zoom and all this stuff, like, you know, it's like, it's like I haven't seen you in a while. It's pretty cool to be able to catch up with everybody. Yeah, I mean, I've had to adapt my own podcast just because I usually, I don't want to say I made people come, but I prefer doing it face-to-face. Just Yeah, yeah, totally. But it's hard. It's hard in a non-pandemic uh, situation to get someone to come to my house. And, and now it's almost, it's virtually impossible. So I'm going to start doing a few Zooms like this just to, you know, keep it going. And you've had uh, one of my former clients on the show. Uh-oh. Uh, Tawny Katane. Oh, yeah. she's uh, She was the one of the, uh, I think, and I don't know why I remember this. I I just released today episode 317. Uh, I think Tawny was number 12. Yeah, she, uh, was, she was really, like, uh, I remember, I think I was still working there at the time, maybe. But, yeah, I was an assistant at the firm where she was a client. And so. Uh, I mean, she was great. Uh you know, uh, only thing she wouldn't talk about was her uh, dating life with uh, Orenthal James Simpson, and uh, but that was fine. 
you know, know occasionally like because like I, was, I worked for her business manager and i had to cash a couple uh of her checks alimony checks from chuck finley good for I, her I, and you know i the nda is long expired on this i think it's all good but chuck finley was one of my heroes for the angels growing up and like to be like oh man dude this sucks dude. i feel bad for the guy he's got to write a check out like this Woo! but he was a really nice guy he took care of her like pretty like i mean i'm not gonna say it, like took care of her, but like he always you know threw extra money when she needed it or whatever like he's a good well, i think they still are very friendly yeah uh, i think they get along pretty well that one incident in the car maybe <laughs> yeah. not so much but I, I think, uh, didn't she like stab him with like her heel where like she kicked yeah. him like in the thigh with her like while she was wearing heels and it like like w- went into his leg or whatever i think she like don't quote me on this but i think she took off her heel and hit him in the face with it while yeah. he was driving but uh, you know uh but yeah she was because she used to come to the comedy store and uh you know i forget who introduced us and uh i talked a lot with her about uh robin crosby from rat and uh, I think she enjoyed that because uh, that was her first love was him. Oh, really? You know? Okay. Well, they went to high school in San Diego and, and they moved to L.A. together. And then, you know, he got famous pretty fast. And then she got famous. Uh, you know, I think Rat's first record came out the same year as uh, Bachelor Party did. So they both kind of were making it together and then, you know, went their separate ways. That's uh, pretty impressive. Like two people to move in like that and make it relatively quick that's like a once in a million story yeah well i had a framed uh robin crosby picture and you know right uh, to my left and so we do the podcast and she gets up and she's putting on her jacket and she looks up and sees the picture and she starts crying oh and uh, so i just took the picture off the wall so you can have it um oh, that's sweet but you could tell she really like that was her first love. Like here's a girl who's, you know, like, you know, David Coverdale, all, uh, you know, rumors has that she kind of dated Tom Hanks and I'm sure many others. And like the first dude she fell in love with still Didn't affected she date her. Jerry Seinfeld for a little bit. I know she was on Seinfeld, but I think she dated him too. Like he dated a lot of those girls that he. Well, I think it depends on what you call dating, but, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah. You mentioned our homeboy Orenthal, James Simpson. Actually, live like live like maybe ten minutes from him. Closer hey, than probably like five to seven minutes. And a couple like a month or so ago, a body washed up in the gated community that he lived in. And guess what? She looked like Nicole. I uh, did they question him? No. Uh, apparently, she was some. It was like dr- uh, a drunk drunk accident where like she was drunk said she was gonna jump in there and it was really cold and she ended up drowning i mean you know it, it blows me away that he didn't get convicted but you know uh my dad worked for la county uh water treatment plant at the time in pomona and the same guy that did their uniforms for the plant also did uh the la county jail and one day i have it somewhere in my memoirs here my memoir i mean my collectibles or whatever but i have a patch from one of oj's uh guards at la county jail <laughs> that my dad I mean, got me during the trial i mean that trial gripped the city i mean that was like the first reality tv show i know that's an old take on it but it really was it really was and like well also i mean it really came out like the same time as the real world 
So like people's perception on entertainment was ch- changing, and like that was the first like trial broadcast where every like yeah usually sometimes they might have cameras in there for the verdict, but for the most part you would just watch the news and it would be those artist drawings. And dude, do you remember on E in like the early aughts when the first Mike, that Michael Jackson trial was going on, and E would do the recaps every night with actors of like that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like wow. it, was, it was like super creepy because some of the actors looked a lot like the people, like the guy that played the wild-haired lawyer that Michael had back then, and he's who's still famous. Uh, uh, Thomas Mesero. Yeah, Mesero. Yeah. Like that dude, like the guy, the actor they got that play, like he looked it up. Like there were some times where I was watching that going like, oh my God, that's the fucking, am I watching the trial? Like, wait, but it was just the E recreations of that day's uh, transcripts. Well, I remember once I was on a plane to visit my parents in Miami and uh, Johnny Cochran was sitting next to me uh, in first class and then the other black lawyer on the team with the bad skin, Carl Douglas, uh-huh. he taps me on the shoulder and goes, Hey, is there a way we could switch seats? I'd really like to sit next to my lawyer partner. And I'm like, no. <laughs> hey, you're going to have to, man. The, you guys uh, got a double murder off. I'm good. Sitting yeah. Right where I'm sitting. yeah. I'm not going to make things any easier for you. So I went on the OJ murder tour, and you should try that out sometime if they're still doing it. I don't know how the COVID thing works, but the guy picks you up in a white Bronco and get, and gives you a ride around and shows you. That's like, pretty fun. Shows takes you to every location, but the fun part of it is, is he really tries to recreate that timeline, and you kind of see how far everything was to each other, and you're like, and you see why you know he was acting the way he was. Like you see the intersection where he almost hit that lady, like all kinds of stuff. It was pretty cool. I mean, that was my neighborhood. I mean, I grew up in Bel Air, but I, you know, if you went like to Santa Monica, you had to cut through Brentwood. Yeah. So I, I was very familiar with, like, you know, all the streets and the intersections. Like, so uh, I think that's why I totally believed he did it. Was like, oh yeah, you can get to his house to her house in under five minutes. Easy. So, There's like that back alley, especially that you could just jam down, and you're like right there. Yeah, and especially on a Sunday night. Yeah, there's no one out. Brentwood's uh, pretty, or that part of Brentwood's pretty empty. So like, uh, you know, I just think that uh mark Furman really lost the case hero cop mark Furman. (laughs) but i mean that questioning uh, by f lee bailey was so perfect like you pinned him into a corner you know you've never said the n-word so if if we produce a tape that says you're saying that and then he would say the word for dramatic effect like 10 times uh and then they got him to say no i've never said it and then roll the tape (laughs) <laughs> and then you, you would have thought a ludicrous record was being recorded. Yeah. Dude, uh, uh, I probably should have bring that up. I'll tell you off camera, but there was an incident in my life recently where N-word was repeated to the point of... Uh, Don't do it on my episode. No, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. But I saw someone take a big fall for it recently, and it was kind of funny. Um, but I was going to say, you actually kind of, in a weird way, have a connection in an odd way to Mark Furman. Yeah, he wrote a book about uh, my cousin. Yeah, my br- this is the part uh, for my brother because my brother is a big fan of this story, and uh, so yeah. 
But yeah, he he wrote a book on my cousin's legal problems. We'll just say it was a legal problem. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, it, it it it's a fascinating story, really. When um, you know, for twenty plus years, uh, one person was thought of as a murderer, and then uh, Mark Furman writes a book saying, "No, no, it's not him. It's his brother." Uh, and so it, it's really like if I take away my association with that story and just look at the story as a whole. And and the way know, the media portrayed the Mark Furman book part of it, too, is like they kind of gave him a pass from the OJ stuff. And it's like it's this cop, hero cop trying to redeem himself is the way that he, it was really sold to the public on it. Well, by all accounts, I, I mean, obviously he was a racist. So, you know, it's like yeah. it, it's hard to, like, give the guy props for anything else. But uh, by all accounts, even by black sheriffs and, and black detectives who were interviewed, he was a good cop, like in terms of his uh, investigative abilities. Um, and so I, I think that's what gave the book a little bit of uh, credibility was uh, you know, he was a lot more than just the OJ case. Uh, you know, he had 20 years on the job. And, and a lot of these cases are a fair amount. He had helped get African-American people off. And uh, I think, too, who were wrongly convicted. Wasn't he one of the investigators during the Night Stalker? Or was it the Hillside Strength? I mean, it, it was like one of those big ones where he was one of the investigators somewhere down the line, like. When I think you're thinking of, and the only reason I know this, and this is where we jump around a little bit, is uh, the John Holmes murders, uh, which oh, were the Wonderland murders, very yeah. famous. Element. They're called Four on the Floor because four people were found. Uh, the lead detectives in that case were Tom Lang and Phil Van Adder. They were the lead detectives in the OJ case. Okay. So. Uh, and uh, I think Tom Lang is still alive. I've always wanted to get him on the podcast just to talk about the John Holmes case. Cause that, like, even though there's been a few movies about it, like, uh, I like the Bill Kilmer one. Yeah. Boogie, I mean, Boogie Nights is the best, uh, like, recreation of it with the Alfred Molina scene where the guy's p- popping off firecrackers and, and he's wearing his bathroom all cooked out. Okay. It's all based on Eddie Nash. Right, who I'm obsessed with, and I thought Eric Bogosian, uh, he looked a lot more like Eddie Nash than Alfred Molina, but uh, absolutely, Bogosian's the man. He's one of my all-time favorites. But he could really, like, he really looked like Eddie Nash because I think they're both Palestinian. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I think Bogosian's Armenian. Okay, um, so he's Palestinian looking. Yeah, uh, but I think he's and- like Syrian Armenian. You have like the Syrian Armenians and then you have like the Russian Armenians. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely uh, many kinds of Armenians uh, and Palestinians. But uh, I, I walk uh, my dog uh, by Eddie Nash's old club quite frequently, and like you can still feel the ghost in the. So, like, what was his story originally? Didn't he, like, he was an immigrant, started off as a hot dog vendor or something like that in front of a club. Yeah, immigrant start off has a hot dog had one hot dog cart I think on like Hollywood Boulevard, and then I'm not sure if the Starwood was his first club, but he became famous or I guess infamous for being the number one cocaine dealer on the West Coast, 
and he had clubs uh, for every genre of uh, society. Like, you know, the Starwood was for the rockers. He had a club that I also walked the dog by on Beverly and La Cienega, which is now a gas station. Huh. No, 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 it's Lens Crafters uh, okay. called the Odyssey, which was 21 and under. So uh, he had a gay club. Uh, he had a strip club on Sunset, the Seven Seas, which I think is where Kimmel is done now. Um, and then whenever his clubs would start losing money, he would just burn them. Whoa. <laughs> uh, and he had a club in the Valley as well. And uh, and he also like uh, was like pretty juiced in politically because that's like how he was able to like juggle all these liquor licenses and everything like that. Like, Yeah, I think they say at one time, he had 27 liquor licenses, which like just having friends of mine, like I have a friend of mine I went to grade school with. He owns one bar in Cahuenga and he just told me what a pain in the ass it was to get one. Yeah. I can imagine what or who Eddie Nash knew where he could get 27. Um, so, uh, you know, he probably paid off the cops because they knew there was, a, especially at the Starwood, there was a lot of drugs with the Starwood. Yeah, that was uh, probably one of his best money-making like places in terms of cocaine sales or whatever. Like, well, I mean, if you look at the bands that played there, I mean, uh, you know, that was kind of an all-inclusive club where it wasn't just metal bands, but like Van Halen played there, and then you'd have the Cars play there. So, where, where exactly uh, was that on Hollywood Boulevard? It's right on the corner of Crescent Heights and Santa Monica on the north, I should say the northwest corner. Uh, and now it's a Russian deli and a, and a massage parlor. Uh, <laughs> so they're still trying to keep the good times going, but it's it's not quite the same. <laughs> so I did an open mic. It's a weird like mini mall where there's a massage parlor and then there was like a coffee type of uh cafe that they had an open mic uh that i used to do and, and then the russian deli which is the primary uh place where the starwood was uh takes up most of that mall uh so it, it's i know, they exa still, I know exactly where you're talking about yeah yeah they still kept the top of the starwood so that that silhouette of the almost look like a taj mahal type top is still there <laughs> um, but uh you know i've often wondered why there wasn't like a documentary on like netflix about eddie nash because he's like he was pretty influential in the music world and plus the drugs and the murders yeah I okay so like for those that haven't seen the movie wonderland it's great where it tells like it tell and what i like about that movie is it tells two sides of it, it tells the the david lynn side and it tells the john and the john holmes side yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't really get into the Eddie Nash side. Uh, I mean, they, you know, Bogosian, uh, I think, did the best he could. But, you know, I, I still think a standalone documentary on just him would be amazing. Just You got to uh, produce it, dude. Like, this is your goal. Well, I mean, I, you, you, like I watched, uh, I've been watching wrestling documentaries on Amazon. Oh, hell yeah. And, you know... You, you think if they have a documentary on this wrestler that, that you know Eddie Nash documentary would would be in the realm like but I think a lot of people are still scared of him because I I won't say who but I've had a few people who were musicians on my podcast and 
I would bring up Eddie Nash to them and every single person shot me a look of, we ain't talking about him. Uh, like next question, Earl. <laughs> um, so like, he's still very, even though I think he deceased a few years ago. Yeah, he, like, I don't like, I think 2012, something like that. You can tell people are still scared of him. So, uh, which is weird because he did like, but you know, he might, in the mob or something so like it's but like the one guy in particular asked was like you could tell he was like "Uh uh-uh i mean because he's obviously he was heavily juiced in politically and in the underworld so i mean that's a scary person right there i mean yeah no i mean but i still think it would be such a fascinating uh oh yeah i'm sorry well because in a way he's like the godfather of la like you know like or, or one of i mean like or the I'm trying to think of like a East Coast organized crime figure to compare to him, but I mean he's his own guy, you know. Like, I mean, but I mean you could get so many celebrities if they would talk. You know, you could get like Nikki Six, who uh, before yeah, Motley yeah. Crue he was in a band called London, and, and they played at the Starwood a lot. You could get, uh, of course, a lot of Quiet Riot is deceased, but like Quiet Riot was was uh, huge at the Starwood and uh, Van Halen. Uh, you, you, I'd love to. I'm sure David Lee Roth had some. I'm sure interesting interactions. I love. I, I've just been rewatching The Sopranos, and I love uh, David Lee Roth as himself in the poker scenes in that. Oh, he's. Uh, but he's like so wacky, though. He, like it's so great. You know, I can imagine him and Eddie Nash disappearing into the uh, VIP room with, you know, who knows what. Yeah. Who or what? Yeah. And, uh, you know. <laughs> Hours later, they reemerge. But dude, uh, one thing I, me and Jen, we were huge fans of the show you were on. Unfortunately, I canceled on Showtime. The I'm dying up here because I've always said like it must be really cool to do a period piece like that where it all takes place in the late seventies or whatever. Well, I mean, I was Eddie Nash. Technically, could have been Eddie Nash. Could have been a character in that show. Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, it, I, I wish the show obviously would have gone on, uh, but, um, uh, you know, it just never grabbed the ratings. Uh, I'm surprised they brought it back for season two, to be honest, because the ratings for season one were pretty low. But I, I think people saw the, uh, the potential uh, of the show and, and, you know, it just, uh, they tried a few different things. I think the first year we were on after Twin Peaks, which was a big show. And then I think the season two we were on after Ray Donovan, which is probably their biggest show or was their biggest show. Uh, it just, uh, I, I think people, that I would get two complaints about the show from my friends. One, we can't find it. It's like, well, dude, everyone has showtime like, or has the ability to have showtime. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's one of the easier things to get. Like, I mean, I understand it's not like as easy to find as like Channel 2, but it's it's pretty easy to find. And then uh, the second complaint was, well, it's not that funny. And I'm like, well, it's more of a drama than a sitcom. Yeah. Stand-up comedy is not funny. Like, <laughs> I mean, look at I mean, I've been doing comedy 20 years. I would say I've known 10 people who've committed suicide. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Brody and, and 
you know, Ralphie may, I, I mean, Ralphie to me committed a slow suicide, but like, it wasn't like a technical one, I guess, but, um, you know, there was an open mic comic by the name of Will, uh, and he's a really funny dude, but he had his right hand was bigger. Yeah, I, than, I know uh, you're talking about Will. Uh, what was his last great name? dude. I'm trying to blank on his name, but can you imagine the torture that he must? And he killed himself. Uh, but can you imagine, like, you're in a, you're trying to get in a business where your whole uh, evening is spent shaking hands, fist bumps and you know you're so insecure or uh, embarrassed or whatever you want to call it because your right hand is like the elephant man's it was something like it was weird because he was like a normal sized guy but his right hand was like the size of a giant yeah um and so i'm sure that you know maybe he got i'm sure people made fun of him to his face or something he's just like fuck this uh so i mean going back to i'm dying up here it's like well that's the kind of shit that's happening you know it's yeah, not I mean, just, just crazy substance abuse problems everywhere and overdoses even you know people that aren't you know. so i think people just and i thought season two got better because they brought in writers i that i think got the vibe like brendan lynch who's like this really funny dark comic uh he he was brought in to write a lot of the stand-up and 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 like he, I think, really got because he's a comic. He got what comics go through. But I just, I don't know. And Melissa's won an Oscar, so like the actors were great. Yeah, like, the performances was, were incredible on that. Yeah, it was really an amazing. You know, Rick Overton's. He was like a comedy legend to me. Yeah, um, me too. I, I'm supposed to have a mon coming up too, so look forward to that one. Oh, he's great. Uh, and you know alfred molina was on it i think for an episode or two as uh yeah. an agent you know andy kendler and uh, i mean all the uh, oliver platt <laughs> yeah he was great uh jake lacy uh, uh clark duke uh, like it was really like perfectly cast uh it, it but was. it just it's funny just one of those things with like premium you know? with premium cable shows like that though when they complain about the ratings it's like well it's not like they're selling advertising dollars for the show so it's like do you i don't know how they equate the ratings into it because it's like okay yes if so many people are watching it but if you give these things a chance to develop like you're probably not going to lose subscribers on it I, well i mean that's the thing is i think long term it could have really had uh at least a five six season run because you could have uh you know obviously the first two seasons were built in and around the 70s and then you could have uh covered like the 80s boom you know the dice kennison era yeah seinfeld roseanne where all of a sudden you could have all making a million dollars a year on the road and stuff like yeah, everyone is a sitcom, and and then you could have covered the the downfall of the Indies, and and so uh, you know I think there was uh, you know room for growth, but uh, you know it just um, I don't know it's just it's to be a part of something like that was neat to watch. Like, why isn't this show doing well? Like, I, you know, the table reads were like unbelievable to be a part of. Uh, 
just because there were so there was like 20 funny people in every show and uh i feel showtimes yeah. ran into that in a couple of ones because i was a big fan of brotherhood did you ever watch that about the providence mob no no i i i got really into ray donovan uh but uh you know, I'm, I'm hit or miss with what I watch. Bro- Brotherhood was great, and it came around like right. I want to say like right as either be right after Sopranos or, or right as Sopranos was ending, and it was like this cool Irish mob where it was almost like the uh, Bulger story. It was it, it was really influenced by that, but it was about the the one brother was a state politician, the other brother was a gangster, and they're running around Providence doing. It was it was really good. It had some really good performances and stuff, but I think they canceled it after the third season. And I felt like that's one of those ones that could easily gone six or seven, no problem. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, in stand up, because uh, I think with Undying up here, what could have been cool is you could have um, brought in new comics for different seasons. You could have had some of the older comics, like you could have had Santino disappear for a season or two and then come back and, and yeah. you know, uh, you know, because in the real world of comedy, you know, comics come and go. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think you could have had a fun uh, cast, revolving cast. And you could have introduced new characters like HBO executives and stuff like that. Or, or I mean, or premium, excuse me, premium cable executives. I don't know who, what. Yeah. Or like, you know, you could have like, obviously, I don't think Gross Battle would have been covered because it was just too far off into the future. Yeah. But like you could have, you know, had a a wacky show like that and bring in characters from that show for a couple episodes. And then, you know, I, I just, uh, I, you know, cause people worked hard on that set, man. It was like a labor of love and, you know, it was like a family. Uh, and the, and the sets were unbelievable. Like the, they could have had comedy shows in either of the two rooms that they built to be the comedy clubs. Like the one, the cellar was basically the belly room. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it, like, I remember I had to do a, a scene there where I did a full set and it, it was like doing a set in a regular club. And then, you know, That's the main cool. showroom, it was pretty amazing. Of course, you, you know, after the second take, uh, I would say on average, each scene, the stand up scenes were probably done seven to 10 times. Cause they have to get, you know, the crowd shot and then they have to get your shot. Yeah. I've done this they'll... before. I've where I, uh, uh, it was a roast scene, but I, I did a roast for a shoot. So it was a film shoot. I, it wasn't like a real roast, but it's like, I'm doing stand-up still. Like it's weird. Well, it was just weird. Cause obviously you have to do like, I'm kind of an improv comic, like uh, from the, not, I don't mean like, the groundlings UCB. I mean, like uh, I could do the same joke 10 times and I'll never say the exact wording. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I always take out a word or add a word, but so I, I uh, was petrified during these uh, uh, scenes. Cause you know, you had to, they would take like maybe a couple jokes from the crowd shot and then they'd flip at the cameras and then you'd have to do the, the exact wording or else it didn't work so uh you know i didn't get into trouble too much but like oh, you could have done a three episode arc out here in vegas man where they open yeah you could Goldie, totally Goldie's uh, vegas and uh, a bunch of the people come out yeah you could you know you could have done uh, a season on that you could have done uh i mean there were so many i think 
potential story lines, but, uh, but you, you know, know I, I just, I don't think anything's ever officially dead now with like Netflix and all the streaming services, like arrested development came back out of nowhere. You know, sh this happens now or like shows just get brought back from the dead. Oh yeah. Like Bob's burgers was uh, off the air for two years. Uh, yeah. And then, and this is going to sound like I'm slightly plugging the cartoon I'm on, but I'm not. But like our uh, last season on Adult Swim was 2019, and it, the show just got not picked up, but put on HBO Max. Uh, so it's kind of experiencing a rebirth. So there's rumors that it might come back. So that's you know, awesome. That's, Congrats, you know, man. Yeah. Well, you don't know. I mean, yeah. you know, but it's the same kind of situation as Bob's Burgers where we, we kind of we've been away for two years, but HBO picks up the cartoon and like, you know, who knows? You never know. And, what, you what, know. Yeah. Once something hits us. Uh, did you ever get in a party down? Those on uh, stars. I don't watch a lot of shows on stars, not because I don't like the network. I just uh, I caught it on Netflix, I think, originally. And there was two seasons. I was like, "Oh, great! When season three drop?" And people were like, "Oh no, that was canceled." That's what I was like, "Oh damn it!" Like it's like it was really good. And it was just about a catering company in L.A. where one of them was an aspiring comic, one of them was an aspiring writer, one of them was an aspiring, uh, you know, actor. Like they all kind of. And then one guy was like the Adam Scott character was the guy who was in like a hit beer commercial once, and everybody recognized him from that everywhere he went. Yeah, I mean it's so. I mean, one of the things I miss about I'm dying up here was it was like an education every day into the business, uh, you know, and just to be around so many successful actors like Brad Garrett, just to see him operate. Uh, I really thought he should have won an Emmy for his. He was uh, really good in his season. Yeah. Yeah, he was. I mean, but I don't think I think because the show wasn't necessarily doing that well in the ratings, they, they weren't going to push him for an Emmy, but like. It, it was uh, it was like going to school and getting paid for it. It was so uh, just wow. This is how a big TV show operates. Uh, so, uh, but you know, hopefully, uh, I'll get another uh, you know kick of the can with something else. I'm sure you will, buddy. I'm sure you will. Who knows? Maybe uh, they'll let me uh, start making my low budget softcore porno horror movies and uh, get you in on some of that action. But that's the kind of stuff that sells, man. It's <laughs> cheap stuff. I mean, if you look at like Roast Battle, you know, that was a cheap show to produce. It's just you need a stage, two mics. And, and now they, Comedy Central went wacky with the, uh, when we went to Montreal, they made this bland nightclub into like a Mad Max from Thunderdome setup. But, uh, you know, I, I it was a cheap show. Like, I think that's what appealed to them was, okay, we, well, we don't need celebrities. At least in the beginning, they didn't think that. And, but then they, you know, Oh, we need to get, uh, you know, the Slar brothers to battle. And it's like, uh, no, you don't like, and I love those guys. No, they're amazing. But like, you know, they, I think roast battle is another show where, you know, it was an educational, um, experience for me to sit there and see how a network butchers a tv show uh i had some friends doing a show in san francisco that i thought had potential for something like that because it was real cheap and easy to do but it was wasted talks with like ted talks but everybody gets hammered drunk before what wasted. yeah i mean you know and there's it, drunk history yeah yeah and it, was, it just fit, it fit right in like it's like almost like uh everybody makes a powerpoint 
And I always thought like that's an easy one for them to do because it's basically like kind of like drunk history, kind of like uh, a roast battle type show where you can just plug and go, plug and go. You know, as long. But that, that's the problem is you would run into if you have to start booking celebrities for it. It's not as funny. But I think if the idea is strong enough, you don't need celebrities. Yeah, you know, sure. like you know, roast battle. It, it is such a simple concept. It's like two people. Hopefully, they know each other you know they roast each other the jokes will be good because they actually do know each other uh but when you have like these like random celebrities who are just on the show for i don't know i don't know to hang out with jeff ross uh you know it's just like it wasn't good like once they got there's so many funny comics who could have gotten on it would that show still be going on because they would have okay this is a roast battle now we get it but like you know, uh, it's, it's just another show that I'm was, uh, one. I've been lucky. I'm Owen one in my uh, battle appearances at the at battle appearance at the comedy store. And I lost to Dave Cyrus, who immediately after got hired at SNL and then immediately from SNL hired to write the the king of Staten Island with Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow. So the next person that wants to roast battle me, uh, good things await you. <laughs> Well, he's amazing. Like uh, Dave's great, but yeah. like, yes, so are you though? Did you know each other? Yeah, yeah, we were friends going into it. That's that's one of the reasons why he asked me. And like, I mean, I had a couple good ones on him. Like, it wasn't like a blowout, but man, he's tough to beat. Like, I, I that's the thing is like having seen some of the rankings on some of these people on there. Like when you get into it, it's like I'd rather lose a few to really good people than have like a really good record against a bunch of cupcakes kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was my thing. I was like, I want the toughest battles. Like, uh, you know, like my last battle, and I don't think I'll ever battle again. Uh, Comedy Central called me up and they were like, hey, we want you to do Cluster Fest. We want you to roast battle. I'm like, okay, well, I want some stand up spots, first of all, or I'm not doing it. And okay, yeah, we'll put you on Todd Barry's show. Oh, perfect. I love Todd Barry. And then I'm like, uh, who's battling? And they, oh, well, Mike Lawrence is on the show and he's the season one champ. And then my friend Jamar and then a couple other people. And then they said Robin Tran. I said, that's who I want. Uh, it's Robin Tran's very funny comic. She's transgendered. I thought that's the toughest battle to battle a transgendered comic in San Francisco. Uh, it, you know, the most probably liberal city in the world. And, uh, I lost because they hated me, but uh, <laughs> I don't think the she's, crowd. She's a really sharp joke writer, too. Oh, she's amazing. But looking back, I probably should have asked the battle someone else because the second I came out on stage, they hated me. Now, granted, <laughs> I was in a dress. And, uh, <laughs> but I, I think because in, in the belly room, as you know, roast battle is anything goes. You at that time you could be as politically incorrect as humanly possible. But I think when the show traveled, sometimes it struggled because people didn't get it. Like, yeah. Like the, the belly room of the comedy, like for Rose battle is like a special, like energy, unlike anything else. And I, I've, I've gone to pretty much every show that like regular show that's happened there over the years. I used to like the old David Taylor one with Sandy. Oh yeah, that well, that was the show. That was the last show before Roast Battle. Like it was the, uh, I, I forgot what it was called, but it was very cutting edge Dave Taylor type humor. Yeah, and uh, and then they stopped doing it, and then I think this uh, female comic was doing 
a really bad open mic. And it wasn't bad because of her. It's just, it was Tuesday night. It was a dead night at the store. And then, uh, Brian Moses, uh, you know, created the brainchild of Los battle. And, uh, but, but like when we would travel sometimes, sometimes it would do amazing. Like the first show we traveled on was, uh, La Jolla. Now you would think roast battle would not do well in La Jolla because it's a very rich upper crust, primarily white audience. You know what? And I, it, you yeah. would normally think that, but I have done La Jolla before, and like I did nine eleven jokes that went over really well there. People were amazed. So you'd be surprised. I think what you can get people would be surprised what you can get away with at La Jolla. Yeah, I mean it killed. I mean this was uh, when I was doing the uh, the I wasn't battling just yet. I was doing the uh, Archie Bunker type heckler. Uh, and I was so convincing that night that the white couple to my left was like, Hey, can we sit at your table? We think like you do. And I'm like, you know, I'm just doing a character. I don't really, (laughs) I really don't think what I'm saying is correct. It's a parody. I'm trying to highlight how people like you are awful. (laughs) <laughs> right i'm making fun of you but you can sit at my table the rest of the show uh, <laughs> but then we went to new york the first time we, we played the uh i'm gonna the, it starts with a c some theater the crests theater or uh i'm drawing a blank and it was packed i it was probably a thousand people in this place uh, wow. standing beyond standing room only but the crowd just didn't get it like uh, you know, Amy Schumer was sitting in the judges section, just arms folded. Like, what is this garbage? Uh, she didn't say that, but like, uh, you know, so sometimes outside of the ballet room, uh, the people weren't that they didn't know if we were being serious or if we we're doing a parody uh, or, you know, it was interesting. Some outside uh, L.A. shows that we did. Yeah, because the belly room does have its own fun little energy. Uh, I think the last time I performed there, um, it was because like Moses always books a few comics to go on before the roast battle starts, and those are great right. spots. Those are great spots because the rooms they can be they can be the room can, like can be jacked, and like I've done it before where it was an amazing spot, and then this time I did it, it wasn't so good because. It happened to be the night that I don't know if you remember this night where Seinfeld returned for the first time in decades. And it, he went up during my set and half the room got text and walked out. And I was sitting there going like, I, I wasn't that bad. How the fuck did I walk the room? And when I go downstairs, I go to the bar and I see Sant- Andrew Santino there. And he goes, did you see him? Did you see him? I'm like, ooh. He's like, Seinfeld. I'm like, oh, that's why everybody walked out there. He's like, you were on stage? I was like, I'm like, yeah, I would have left too, dude. Like, I, like, anybody can see me anytime. Seinfeld coming back, that's a big deal. I do remember that night. Uh, you know, just bad luck. Bad timing, I should say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> timing isn't always everything. Yeah, no, the belly, belly room's magical when it's like a a happening show and oh yeah because it's you know that like you said the low ceilings uh it traps the energy yep um so it really i think uh roast battle was like the perfect show for that room at, at that time absolutely agree yeah there's there's something like it um like tuesday nights there because like that's the thing is it wouldn't start till like 11 and so i mean people would be there packed in there late that's a hard to do in la like Oh, dude, it was like, 
I mean, I, that first year and a half, uh, I mean, I think the best times on that show were before it got to TV uh, because it was just like the little show that could. Like, no one, I don't think anyone in their right mind thought this is going to get on television. So, no. Uh, no, it, it felt just, more like just comic fight club, you know, where comics were like having fun with it, though. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, I think after season one, it changed a lot just because people like, I think a lot of comics thought, oh, I can get on TV just having like two minutes of roast jokes. So, which is not hard to do. No. Um, you know, so it, it became a little more like I got to climb over this person to get on, you know, the radar of well, you know, who kind of like with drunk history. I kind of felt like like in the not so much the first two seasons, maybe, but like in the later seasons, people were kind of playing up the, the drunk angle. Whereas like in the early ones or like Kyle Kinane's like legit blackout hammered throwing up on the floor. Like, that's funny. <laughs> but like some. Of yeah, these- no. Some of these people having three uh like white claws like acting like they're black you know like acting like they're hammered it's not as funny not that i think people should have to get blackout hammered for the sake of comedy but in that situation it's funnier when people are genuinely trashed yeah yeah i mean i think like uh you know the first year and a half of, of roast battle in the belly room there were very few celebrities uh, who would go up there and, and the few that did it was a very intimidating room. I mean, it was like for, for wrestling fans, uh, it was very ECW. Like it was just like blood sport and, uh, you know, and then once it got to TV, it got very sanitized and and I get it. You have sponsors. You can't do what we were doing that first year and a half, but, uh, you know, there was almost fist fights on some battles and, and, you know, it was just uh, me and Moses had really good chemistry together. Uh, so that, you know, because in the early days, the battles were pretty bad. So people were coming to see what me and Moses would do. Um, and then, uh, you know, the battles got a little better as, as time went on. And, uh, and and Coach T, the DJ, is the quickest guy I've ever been around. Uh, so, uh, you know, show had a good run. I mean, I think it's still going on, but I'm not sure what they're doing with it now. With COVID, yeah, with COVID and everything. Uh, oh, man, I totally... Okay, so I wanted to tell you... Oh, uh, we talk about wrestling. Uh, I don't know if you saw the news, but... Or if any... Like, uh, Lauren Boebert. I don't know if you followed her, who she is. She's the QAnon House of Representatives member from Colorado. I, I know who she is, but I don't follow her, to be honest. Okay. Uh, she owns a place called Shooter's Grill in uh, Rifle, Colorado. Where all the waitresses have okay. loaded handguns on their side, which oh, is good for them. Yeah, which is really funny. But I guess they gave dozens of people bloody diarrhea at a rodeo. So that's the backstory on this lady, as far as I know. But dude, this is so funny because I think you like this is where I want to talk to you about it. So I guess on her YouTube channel, her YouTube channel, where she puts up a lot of videos about her business and politics, her mom's been leaving all these comments. And her mom claims that her dad, biological dad, is Stan Lane from the Fabulous Ones. Okay. I mean, well, who knows with wrestlers? Now, this woman is Stan Lane's biological first cousin. So if this is all true, then then this lady is 
Sam Lane's and his cousin's like illegitimate uh, devil spawn, so to speak. But this is kind of what I wanted to bring up with you because this is just funny to me is the fabulous ones looking back as far as I can remember, their gimmick was like off duty Chippendales dancers. Is that what was going on there? I mean, uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, because uh... <laughs> I'm thinking of all the other gimmicks of those 80s tag teams, like uh, the fucking Road Warriors is pretty like Mad Max theme, like tagged. It was a pretty well defined gimmick there, you know, like and like Demolition kind well, of did a knockoff version of that. And, you know, most of them had pretty clear defined uh, gimmicks, but like. In the case of the fabulous ones, I just think they were like out of work Chippendales dancers. I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, you had, well, I watched a uh, great documentary yesterday on the Ultimate Warrior. And uh, obviously, uh, he was his first tag team partner was Sting. Well, see, yeah, the, they Blade, were the, the Blade, Blade Runners. Runners. Yeah. Was and it- they had, they were, ex- they were experimenting a lot in the early days with their makeup and, they look like two bondage uh, dudes. <laughs> like they did this really bizarre uh, uh, vignette. I guess I, I want to say sketch, but I guess it's a vignette in wrestling where they were bench pressing and they were wearing ball gags. <laughs> like, <it was> really <laughs> like, but they were actually lifting the weights. And like Sting was a big guy. Sting was probably you know, 260 and pretty Jack, but the warrior was, I, I don't know how he could be twice the size, but he was like 300 and Jack. Uh, so they were like, and uh, Sting basically said, Hey, we were ripping off the, they wanted us to be the ultimate or uh, the uh, row warriors. So yeah. we were trying to like, be a younger version. And uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was, that's like, I mean, a, well, they, I they tried to do that with the powers of pain. Remember? Like and then oh yeah and then the Legion and then the Road Warriors went to WWF and at, and then uh, Powers of Pain had to like split up and like change you know okay rebranding Hawk and uh or what, what was their names in that uh, Warlord and Barbarian yeah, that's what it was yeah and you well you had also and then they would do these tag teams where they didn't have a name but it was like uh, Hercules and uh, like the Missing Link just two big huge dudes. Uh, like uh, I, my, what was it? The Twin Towers, uh, Big Boss Man, and Akeem the African Dream. <laughs> I was just gonna. I bought a T-shirt of theirs uh, a couple of years ago, and I I would like wear it to the gym to work out in, and uh, I had to give it to a homeless person because I was getting so many dirty looks. Uh, <laughs> it, it was this bright yellow shirt, and had had slick that, with. It had slick with them. I'm guessing they're they're man. no, no. It was just them, and uh, you know, it's that very famous. Or not, I don't know if it's a famous shot, but it was just them kind of ne- standing next to each other, no slick, and uh, you know, about the. It, it's only one of two wrestling shirts that's almost caused me to get into a fight, and the <laughs> other one was, you know, me, and I don't, I don't know if this is on the video or is the code, but. I'm a big Kamala fan, and uh, Kamala, I the Uganda giant, t-shirt. yeah, yeah, from uh, Mississippi via Mississippi. Uh, I bought a Jungle Book T-shirt that had like the evolutionary chart of man, and you oh. know it was like 
that evolutionary chart. And then Kamala was the last person. And uh, I, once again, I would wear that to the gym and I'd get some really dirty looks. Because people probably uh, didn't get the context of him being a superior man as a wrestler kind of thing. Yeah, and so I asked my friend Jay Washington, who's this gigantic black wrestler. I'm like, hey, I know dude, Jay. Like, I know Jay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's very funny, and and you know, it obviously does pro wrestling. I'm like, is this a racist shirt? And he just looked at me like, don't wear it again. Because <laughs> <laughs> Kamala, he got the money from the T-shirt, so I, I'm all about supporting like these guys. These yeah. guys make no fucking money, especially the older guys, where it's like, man, they're lucky to have an appearance fee here and there. So any kind of merch they can do is is good money for them. So uh, I, I only had, I only kept one of my Kamala shirts, which is just a one of his face. That's cool. But now I get props on it. Like so many people remember Kamala that, you know, I'll give people play. Hey man, Kamala, they'll give me a thumbs up. And like, you, you know, know who I, the dog park. You know, who was great too is yeah. remember Abdullah, the butcher. Uh, excuse me. Do I remember Abdullah, the butcher? <laughs> and he holds up an Abdullah, the butcher figure. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Now, he, I've been doing comedy for, for 20 years, uh, you know, you think getting on TV or whatever would be like a highlight for me. But when I got a package one night at the comedy store from a fan and I opened it up and someone got me that Abdullah the Butcher wrestling doll. That's, uh, that's, why, right? that's why I do comedy. Yeah. Not for the money, not for the, the limited amount of fame I have. Uh, I should just give my address out right now so people will send me cool stuff. But to have a fan care so much about, like, I don't know, me or whatever, and know I'm a wrestling fan, I mean, that, I don't know, that's makes up for all the bad things I've experienced in comedy. Dude, that's, that's pretty rad, man. I gotta say, that's, that's pretty cool. It's Not- just stupid. Like, you know, I didn't even know they made an Abdullah the Butcher doll. Yeah, I would, I never would have thought that was, that existed. Like, that, you really got me on that one. Like, when I brought, I had no idea that was already within arm's reach of you. <laughs> I also have my uh, autographed uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, can of bubblegum soda. Thank wow. you very much, uh, Piper. And uh, if All I right, was on yeah. my iPad, I would show you my uh, "They Live" mask uh, Roddy gave to me, but uh, it's over there. You just have to take my word for it. No nah, man, like I, uh, I'm a big fan of that era of wrestling. It was a big part of my life. Like it's, it's so cool. But I, I, uh, like when you start, getting, then, like, dude, the dude, the gimmick because... of uh, Akeem the Average Dream, because what was he, one man gang? And then like when they would change gimmick overnight, it was always a hilarious promo. Like where he was like, "I'm not no longer one man gang." I found my roots in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa. And it's just this big, fat white guy. <laughs> like... Well, I mean, it, because I think the internet really hadn't taken off back then. So, you know, and I've done this joke a million times, but, you know, I was like, I really thought Kamala was from Uganda. Like, I, <laughs> I didn't have anything. No, I mean, I, I didn't I did have... Too. Like, uh, yeah. Um... I didn't have any other uh, reference to go, oh, he's from Mississippi. So, um, 
No, I legit thought the Ultimate Warrior was from Parts Unknown, where they're like, this guy just came out of nowhere one day. <laughs> Made sense yeah, to me. I, mean, <laughs> I remember uh, looking at uh, a, a, par, a, a globe looking for Parts Unknown. <laughs> so, like, going, where is it? Oh, man. Um, so. Dude, we, we got to have to, I'm going to have to have you back just to do an entire, because we, we're running out of time here, but we got to just do an entire wrestling episode one day, dude. Just, just go through the hits, man. Cause some of like, dude, uh, I know, you know, a lot of the guys personally, but like, man, some of those gimmicks, like I think of the guys like with their gimmick before they became famous, you know, like, like they get like Buff Bagwell became known for being Buff Bagwell, but his Marcus Alexander Bagwell, like prep school character before that didn't quite take off but like well i mean yeah there's i mean there's so many like especially from the 80s you, you know when you think of uh you know just you could do a documentary on just how black wrestlers were portrayed um you know you had like slick the jive talking pimp you had <laughs> you know kamala portrayed as some savage animal you know, junkyard dog being forced to go to the ring on all on all fours. Uh, and then Ron Simmons know. was a heel as part of Doom with Butch Reed, and then he had like the face term is like I think he's like the first like positive black wrestler in a lot of ways, like where it's like former Florida State guy, all American image kind of thing. Yeah, like Tony Atlas, you know, portrayed as some just bodybuilder who could barely form a sentence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, you had uh, Bad News Brown, who was like a legit judo champion uh, in the Olympics. Like he was no joke. He, he, you know, I know we got to wrap up, but if you want some great, like real interviews on, he keeps it real on YouTube. He's deceased now too, of course, but like, you know, he tells it like it is, but you know, he, they take this Olympic champion, like legit. And turn him into some black power, you know, like Raper Johnson type character. It's like, just let him be an athlete, man. And like they had a, a whole thing too with him where it's like uh, that his feud with Jake the Snake Roberts, where he had like the thirty pound sewer rat from Harlem that he that he kept in a cage to fight Jake Snake. <laughs> well, just I mean, probably the most racist. I mean, there's so many like. When they had Kamala, who uh, Slick was trying to teach Kamala how to bowl, and like it's just like he's laughed. throwing the, he's throwing the ball backwards. Like instead, and I, I know this is not on video, but instead of going like this, he's going like that and throwing the ball back there. And like, but I will say, even though they make Kamala out to be a moron. The funniest thing was when he would pin a guy, they had him portraying that he was so stupid that he would flip them on their stomach and then try and pin them. (laughs) And the ref would be like, no, you have to flip him over. Like everyone in the arena would be like, no, turn him over. And then Kamala, who was a really good actor, I've got to say, he would get this like, confused look on his face and he would just like look around like what am i doing and then of course the other guy 
would, would gain regain his strength and then pen Kamala. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, sad but funny. The guy lost his fucking legs to the business, yeah. and uh, Chris Jericho paid for his funeral. Like no WWE person did. You got Chris Jericho, who's a saint, and you know he didn't uh, advertise. Hey, I'm such a you know I hate it on GoFundMe and all those uh, like crowd things asking for money when people put their name on it because they want you to see they donated chris jericho just did it anonymously but i'm calling him out for being a great guy and you know like, you'd think that we could have given kamala's family 10 grand for a funeral you no know, it's about a year ago now i actually had to do a gofundme for some dental work and a few famous comics did that privately on there and i thought that was that i that i didn't even know Right. I, I thought it was a really class move. I was like, oh, man, these guys are helping me out for like just because I'm a fellow. They heard about a fellow comic in trouble kind of thing. Like, Well, in my defense, I didn't know about that uh, or else I would have <laughs> donated. I would have donated under Kamala's name. <laughs> well, Earl, I appreciate having you on, buddy. Anything you want to plug underway? Where can people check out your show? I mean, just I'm at Earl Stakel on all social media. That's E-A-R-L-S-K-A-K-E-L. Uh, the Jellies is now on uh, HBO Max. So if you like cartoons, you like Tyler, the creator, it's, I play the dad on it. I'm the only white guy on the show. Uh, so, um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess that's all I have to plug, to be honest with you. And people can check out Inappropriate Earl anywhere podcasts are available. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's on, uh, inappropriate. That's why I've not made my own podcast. Uh, yeah, it's Inappropriate Earl on Apple podcast and uh, soundcloud and uh, like today i just released a really uh it was a happy and a sad uh interview with val james who was the first u.s african-american born player in the nhl so uh you know like willie o'ree gets a lot of the credit and he should because he was the first black player but val uh was the first u.s born player and uh, you know he was a fighter so you can imagine the racism and, and what he went through because he was beating up white athletes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. you know, if you like hockey, it's a good episode. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. And, uh, yeah, you've had, like, all kinds of wrestlers and rock and roll people and a wide variety of people there. So definitely check that out. Thank you again. Yeah, I've had Roddy Piper. Yeah. Thank you, dude. It's great to see you. Tell Jen I said hello. I love you guys. Will do. And, and yeah. thank you all so much for listening. Goodbye. And that was Earl Skakel. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Next week. On the show, I have my friend Ben Kalina and uh, Chris Durant. So those are going to be some good episodes I have lined up. Also, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. And then if you want to contribute and help out the show and help us grow and uh, so I can upgrade some of this equipment and whatnot, please go over to our Patreon where I have exclusive bonus content at patreon.com slash Thank you so much, everyone, and I'll see you next week.